All right. Um, so this morning, we are going to be starting a new sermon series as well. Um, and so let me encourage you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of First Peter. And I'm going to invite Jay Mabry to come now. Uh, he's going to be kicking this sermon series off for us. Again, he, he, we sent him out last week. He was preaching in Caskey. Uh, he's preaching here this morning. And it's kind of a busy time in your life, isn't it, brother? Can I pray for you real quick? Father God, I thank you so much for my brother, and I thank you so much for your word, and I pray that as those two come together in this moment, your people would be blessed, and that we would know your will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, a theme I heard in everyone up here that was speaking was that they were all joyful, right? Joyful to serve Christ, and oftentimes we think that going on mission or serving Christ can be a drudgery, or or he's going to, it's a it's something we're not going to enjoy, but they all are speaking about the joy that was in them serving Christ. And Wednesday night, we got to talk about the joy Edgewood has had in serving Christ for 65 years. The joy in God's faithfulness to His church here, you, for 65 years. Uh, if you didn't get to come Wednesday night, there's a bunch of stuff in the, in the foyer you can look at and see people who have, who have passed on to be with the Lord and see the different activities Edgewood has been involved in here in the city over the course of its life, but something stuck with me Wednesday night, and I text Brandon yesterday to make sure I got the words right, but, <laughs> but something stuck with me. Brandon said, as he looked across the 65 years of Edgewood, now he hasn't been here for all of them, but as he looked back and looked across it, something that he saw was some consistent trends of family, being the family of God, faith, being, being trusting in God and in the way he was moving in this church, and missions, what we were seeing up here this morning. Uh, a theme of faith and family and missions and and I think that is how this church would be identified as people look at it that's that's what we are about so this morning I want you to think about three things three words three phrases that would identify you to the world if someone said hey who are you how would you identify yourself think of three things now I'm gonna detour for a minute and we'll come back to that but as Brandon said we're we're entering a new series this morning that's always always fun um, we're going to be in the first book of Peter. So as you're turning there, I like to talk about what the first book of Peter is about. And it is about the believer's behavior. It's about your and my behavior in the world, how we interact with every circumstance we're, we come into contact with, and especially how we interact with the relationships that we have, how we interact with authority that's set over us, how we interact with, with our husbands, with our wives, how we interact with people who are treating us unfairly. It's not just about our behavior, but it's about our behavior in the face of unfair circumstances. And so, what have we been talking about this year? We've been talking about what it means to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom living here on earth. Citizens of one place living in another. And if you're a citizen of one place living in another, things are not going to go your way. As a Christian, things often don't go our way. But the book lays out how we defer to God in those circumstances, how we continue to live a set-apart, a holy life, even though opposition is coming our way, how we don't react negatively towards that opposition, but we defer to God. And then it lays out that our motivation for doing that is following in Christ's footsteps and our anticipation of glory as a result of following in Christ's footsteps. So that's the motifs of Peter. That's, that's what the book is going to consist of. That's what we're going to walk through over the next few weeks is a very practical look at how we live out this Christian life. But 
I think the purpose of the book is more than that. The purpose of the book was to encourage a struggling church, to encourage believers who were dealing with these unfair circumstances. That was Peter's goal is encouragement. And that is my goal this morning is, well, it's twofold. It's to lay out a, basically a trampoline for us to jump into the book, to bridge where we've come from, where we're going, and to encourage you. So tell you what, let's read 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, and then I'll pray and we'll flow out of that. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We all know who Peter is, right? An apostle of Jesus Christ, one who was called by Christ and walked with him, saw him perform miracles upon miracles, feeding thousands, calling people from the dead, one who ascended the mountain and was transfigured, or saw Christ transfigured, and then one who denied him, left him, was fearful, one who was forgiven by the risen Christ and then commissioned to do exactly what he's doing in this letter, in feeding Christ's sheep. That Peter, that's how he identifies himself, that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and washing with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for the freedom that we celebrate this weekend to, to worship you openly and, and without much opposition. Uh, Please uh, fill me with your spirit this morning. Put my word, put your words on my lips, and I pray the same for our brother Philip preaching at Caskey this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. All right. So, has anyone ever visited the website Open Doors? It's OpenDoorsUSA.org. Maybe Brandon, maybe Frankie. But if you haven't visited that website, check it out. It's really cool. And what it is is basically an evaluation of the persecution of the church throughout the world. And it's on an individual, country-by-country country basis. And so they give an index rating to what type of persecution these countries are facing and how severe it is. And so it's color-coded, and, and we're green, by the way. Not much persecution here. But it lets you know what your brothers and sisters around the world are going through. And I tell you that to tell you this. Last year, 2022, 360 million of our brothers and sisters were discriminated against and or persecuted for their faith. Now, the scope of that persecution is wide-ranging. It can be a familial type of persecution where my wife doesn't talk to me anymore or leaves me because I claim Christ's name, or I lose my job, or I go to the grocery and can't buy food because I'm an apostate of the Muslim faith because I claim Christ's name now, so I can't feed my family. And it runs all the way up to government-mandated persecution in places like North Korea where it it involves beatings, it involves prison time, it involves death for 5,898 of our brothers and sisters last year. It meant carrying Christ's name to the grave, standing fast in his name to death. Fun fact, 89% of that was in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment. There's an immense war against the church going on there. But I tell you that to say that's the context this letter was written into. That's the context these first century Christians were in need of encouragement for. That's not something that we experience, right? Typically. You may have been persecuted for your faith. You may have been made fun of because you believe something that sounds silly to the world. You may have been kicked out of a social group because you wouldn't participate in certain things. You may have even lost your job before because you stood fast for something that honored Christ instead of bending the rules the way your boss asked you to. But when you compare it to our brothers and sisters around the world, 
one of it, which I saw a video a while back of a guy in India who was passing out gospel tracts on a bus. He got off the bus, was tied to a tree, beaten with sticks, got back on the bus and handed out gospel tracts all the way back home after being severely beaten. When we look at it in comparison to that, we don't face a lot of persecution. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to in the future. That doesn't mean that the winds in our society aren't shifting because they seem to be, and that's not a prophecy. That's just a looking at things and saying, hey, it doesn't look good for God's people here in the future. So we need encouragement too. We need encouragement to know how to deal with this when it comes our way. So let me ask you how you would encourage these Christians. How would you encourage these first century Christians? How would you encourage your brothers and sisters around the world facing extreme difficulty? What would you say to them? What would you say to someone facing that type of situation? What do you say to someone who's sitting here this morning struggling in their faith? How do we encourage? Well, Peter does it in a particular way. He encourages, it by, encourages them by writing a very practical book about here's how you live in the face of these circumstances. But then he, he grounds all of that encouragement in the believer's identity. He grounds the encouragement in verses 1 and 2 in the believer's identity and then who that believer is in God's identity. And so he wants the reader to know who they are and whose they are. That's how he encourages. That's how he's grounding this whole book. So I asked you to pick a few things that you would identify yourself as. I can't let everybody say them. But I bet it sounds a lot like mine. Father, mother, or I'm not a mother. Father, husband, an employee at a certain place, a member of Edgewood. Those things are foundational to who I am. Our identity is foundational to who we are. It is a springboard for how we engage in society. It is a springboard for our actions that we're going to, that are going to play out every day in our lives. It's how we engage the world. It's our motivation for what we do. That's why it's important. But our society tells us something different about our identity. Our society knows that. But everything I just listed about myself was external, right? Being a husband is external. Being a father is external. Things around me shape me and determine my action in the world. Our society right now says, our culture says, that no, your identity is from within. Your identity is springing out of how you feel, your, your biology, whatever warped thing you have going on in you at the moment. If you don't succumb to that, if you don't submit to that, then you're not going to be happy. You're not going to have joy. You're never going to find peace. You have no control over your identity that's coming from within you. The problem is that doesn't hold fast. If, if your identity is coming from within you, you're going to fold when things get going rough. Peter knows your identity is external, but he grounds it in something way bigger than us. He grounds it in the fact that your identity is rooted in God and that he has chosen your identity for you. He calls our identity he calls us elect exiles in verse 1. He says, you are an elect exile. That is completely external of you, and that's your identity. And that is that church's in the first century's primary identity. That is our primary identity. Elect exiles. Not father, not husband, not mother, not employee, not Hopkinsvillian, if that's a word. Your primary identity is external. All those things are secondary to that. And so 
let's examine this morning how he wants to encourage us through those words, through, through denoting what our identity is. So we've been walking through what it means to be an exile. That's one of the things he identifies us as, right? He says, you're an exile. We've been walking through that. It means to be a citizen in one place, living in another. Daniel was an exile, a citizen of Jerusalem, suffering in the Babylonian kingdom. Ukrainian refugees right now are exiles, living somewhere else that's not their home. Their home is in Ukraine. They want to be in Ukraine, back with their family, back where they grew up, and they're stuck somewhere else because of war. They can't go home. I think that's, that's another way to say what an exile is. It's someone who wants to be somewhere and can't get there. Have you ever wanted to be somewhere and you can't go? That's what they're dealing with. And so he identifies them as exiles, but that's not very encouraging. It's not very encouraging if I walk up to a homeless person and say, hey, you're homeless, and pat them on the back. I did nothing to encourage them. I simply identified who they are. They'll probably look at me crazy and be like, yeah, I'd like a sandwich. Thanks for, for telling me that I'm an exile or that I'm homeless. But he identifies them as an exile for a purpose. He wants them to know that their home is not here. He wants us to have a full understanding that our home is not here in 2023 in Christian County. But he leaves it open. Where is your home? If your home is not here, then where is your home? Now, what's the church answer to where your home is? Heaven? All right. Y'all got to wake up. Uh, so he doesn't leave it at that, though. He identifies them as exiles, but he, he, that is a sort of a derivative of the primary thing he identifies them as, which is elect. So in the Greek, it says, to the elect, exiles of the dispersion, to the elect is one word. That is the primary thing he identifies these Christians as, is elect. So, what does it mean to be elect? We do it every four years, right? We have two people that run for president, that argue for six months, that call each other names, that we decide aren't qualified to drive a car, much less drive this country, and one of them gets picked anyway. And that's what it means to be elect. It means to be picked, to be chosen out of, to be selected from. And so he's saying, you are selected out of the world for your home not to be here. So where is our home? Well, in the original language, that elect word plays a role in two places. It plays a role in verse 1. It's the primary identifier. And it plays a role in front of verse 2. In front of the Trinitarian discourse in verse 2, it's intrinsically tied there. We lose that in translation. But if you have an ESV... Uh, CSB, it's up front. If you have a King James, New King James, NASB, it's, it's in front of verse 2. And the translators have a difficult time knowing where to put it because it plays in both places. So they pick where they want it to go to serve the purpose that, that they think is most important. But it does play in both places. And what he's doing is saying, your home, you were chosen for your home not to be here and your home to be in God. For your home to be in a person. Your home is not a place, it's a person. And it is in the, in the personhood of God, and specifically in the personhood of God in Jesus Christ, where all the attributes of God were made manifest. So our home is not a place. Our home is not technically heaven. Our home is Christ, and wherever Christ resides at that moment. And right now He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, so that's where our home is. And He will come back 
and bring his kingdom here. And that's where our home will be. But our home is in a person. And our home is in every good trait that he, he possesses. Your home, Christian, your home, Edgewood, is Christ. Not Hopkinsville. Not Jerusalem like Daniel's home was. Daniel would stand in his window, Brandon said a few weeks ago, and he would pray and he would face Jerusalem when he prayed. Because that's where his home was. That's where the temple was. That's where the law could be kept because that's where the sacrifices could be made. That's where Daniel's home was. That's where he was exiled from. We are exiled from Christ. We are here and he is there. So we've established that our identity is chosen by God for our home not to be here, but to be Christ. But how exactly does that work? Peter could have left it at, to the exiles of the dispersion. May grace and peace be with you. But he doesn't. He gives us a very deep explanation in verse 2 of how our election works. He wants us to understand how we are saved. If I have a tool and I know how that tool works, it's a lot more effective in whatever purpose I have it for than if I just know that if I stick it in this hole and, and pry, this is going to come up. But if you know how leverage works, the pry bar becomes more effective because you know how to leverage the leverage. But he, uh, so he wants us to understand how it works. He cared about doctrine. He cared about us understanding who we are in God. So let's explore that a little bit. Let's explore what it means to be elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. That's what it says. You're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. That is the origin of your election. That is, not, that is the how it happened, the why it happened, and not the purpose, but the, the causation of why you even exist. It was God's electing foreknowledge that you're even sitting here this morning. It's the origin of your existence, the origin of your salvation. Simply because he wanted to glorify himself through your existence. So that language sometimes can make us uncomfortable. When we get into that elect language, that chosen language, especially in Baptist churches, we can shy away from it, right? Because there's free will Baptist, there's, there's very reformed Baptist, and people tend to come down really hard on one side or the other. But it doesn't have to make us uncomfortable because it's in the Bible, right? It's God's Word. It doesn't have to make us... Well, God's Word makes us uncomfortable. But this particular portion doesn't have to make us uncomfortable. Peter's using it to encourage, not to discomfort. He wants them to know that the fact that you're chosen should be an encouragement in your life. The fact that you're picked should be an encouragement in your life. The Bible doesn't shy away from this language. It's just all over the Bible. Peter writes to the church at Thessalonica, or Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul, a guy that didn't exactly get along with Peter, says the exact same thing Peter said. He says, You're chosen by God through the Spirit. For obedience to the truth or belief in the truth. And what is the truth but word? And what is the word but Christ? To the church at Ephesus, he writes, Blessed be the God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. He chose you, church, sitting here 2023, before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, your name was written in the book of life. 
before you ever existed, before you were ever thought of, before time started, God had set his favor upon you. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God, in his foreknowledge, chose you? Well, what it doesn't mean is that he looked down through time and he said, Jay, not this Jay, that Jay, Latham is going to choose me and Ryan is going to choose me. So, you know what? I'm going to set my favor on them. I know how things are going to play out, so I'm going to react to that. God's not really a reactionary. What that does is place an action that we can do as the primary motivator and then makes God a reactionary to that primary motivator when God works exactly the opposite. He chose you because he wanted you. Simply because he wanted you. He is the motivator and you are the reactionary. That's what it means to be selected in the foreknowledge of God. The fact that you have done nothing deserving of his selection of you, but he selected you anyway. He selected me anyway, even in all my frailty, in all my sinfulness. He picked me anyway. He wanted me, and he chose me. John 6 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, sent me draws him. No one can come to Christ unless God draws them. When Peter claims that Christ is the chosen one, when he claims that Christ is the Savior of the world, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. We can't see God without him first allowing himself to be seen. So that's supposed to be an encouragement. The fact that God has picked you out of the world to live here and now for his glory. That's supposed to be an encouragement to these suffering first century Christians. But it's only an encouragement if you know you've been picked, right? If you don't know you've been picked, then that's not much of an encouragement. So how do we know that we've been chosen of God? How do we know that we are of the elect? What's well, because of our experience of that election through the Holy Spirit? We are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. That is the experience of our election. That's the day-to-day -day in and outs of our walk with Christ. That's how we know that God chose us. How do you know you're elect? If you're asking that question, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe he is king? Are you following after him daily? Then you're elect. Then you're chosen of God. It's, it's pretty simple. Now, we get into the whole thing of, of free will of man and the sovereignty of God and how those two different things play together and... That's a difficult thing to walk through. It's not something we're, gonna, we're going to solve this morning, but the sovereignty of God does not nullify our moral obligation as humans. The problem is our moral obligation as humans, we fail at. So he had to intervene through Christ and through the Spirit coming into our lives and making us aware of our failure and making us aware of the salvation that is available. So, when it comes to the free will versus Calvinist debate, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I see free will all through the Bible. I can't read the Bible without seeing our choices being something that matter. And I can't read the Bible without seeing God's choices overriding our choices. And somehow they work together like this in a way that He'll explain to me one day and I still won't understand. So, we're going to depart from that this morning.
and talk about more about how we're sanctified in the Spirit. So sanctification in the Bible often means two things. It means two things here. It means a once and final sanctification. It means coming to Christ and Him covering you with His blood, as it says later on in the verse. What we often call justification. And then it also means the ongoing process of you being made into Christ's image. And so we are chosen by God to be made into Christ's image. And everything we experience in this life is for our salvation and our sanctification as elect exiles, as people who don't have a home here. And so let's talk about that for a few minutes. In Acts 17, I go to Acts 17 way too much probably. It informs me way too much. But in Acts 17, Paul's at the Areopagus in, in Athens, and he's talking to the Greek thinkers, and he's trying to explain to them that there is a God that exists in a way that they haven't understood before. But he says that, and I'm paraphrasing, he says that every people that's ever existed existed in the time and the place that they existed so that they might reach out for God and perhaps find Him. Basically, what he's saying is you existed in 2023 in America, in Hopkinsville, so that you could find God. Because that was the best chance of any time he could have put you for you to seek out and find him. How's that for encouragement? How's that that God ordained your life specifically so that you could find him? Specifically so that you could be told about him, realize your need for him and want him. That's how he's encouraging these Christians. He's saying God loved you and wanted you so much that he oriented all of eternity, not wholly because of, but as a small part so that you could find him. So every moment before your salvation was leading up to it. Everything that went bad in your life was so that you knew you needed him. And then after the point that you come to Him, after the point that you knew you were elect, every moment after that is for your sanctification. It's for you to be made in Christ's image. So your whole life is serving for a purpose. Nothing in your life is by accident. Nothing in your life is trivial. Nothing you experience is, is meaningless. God has ordained all of it for your good. Now, the good that he sees and the good that we see are often different things. But it's, it's so you're made in Christ's image. Every pain is because God has chosen you and it's all working together for your good through the sanctification of the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction, whatever's going on in your life, whatever persecution you're dealing with, whatever beating that man in India was taking in that moment was preparing for him an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It was, it's working together for his good. Whatever you're dealing with sitting here this morning is working together for you in eternal weight of glory. So if you've got relational strains in your life, we're going to talk a lot about relationships through the book of Peter. At least, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but whatever relational strains you have, because you've stood fast for the name of Christ, maybe your children this morning are sort of estranged from you because they're not living a way that you see as pleasing to God and, and y'all have had some disagreements about that and you're really struggling with how that relationship is, guess what? It's working for you in eternal weight of glory. 
and hopefully working for them in eternal weight of glory. Every sickness that you're dealing with currently, every job loss or bill you can't pay, the cancer that has brought you face to face with death in a way you've never experienced before, it is working for you in eternal weight of glory. It is purposed by God to make you see that this place is not your home. It's really easy for us in America to feel at home. Who feels at home here? I do. Because it's easy here. And so the things we encounter are for us to see that this is not our home, for us to fix our eyes on Christ. Um, all the persecution and events of our lives are so that we know this isn't our home. I was reading a devotional a little while back, and um, it was a, a Piper devotional, but basically what the summation of what he said in the devotional that morning was that there's a type of Christianity that exists, especially in America and other places in the world, where we want the, the result of what Christ did for us, but we want as much of this world as we can get before we get that. We want Christ to come, but not come right now because things are going pretty good in my life. We want Christ to come, but just wait a while. And he says, true Christianity, Christianity that is on fire and fervent is calling for Christ to come every minute of every day. It's a Maranatha type cry. It's come Lord Jesus. That is the faith that we are supposed to have that we are crying out for God to come every day. That is the way we are supposed to view this world, that we are strangers here and we want to go home. And our home is Him. Our brothers and sisters around the world get this. Um, I was, there's a video on YouTube that, well, it's a, it's a movie on YouTube and it's quite long, but it's worth the watch. Uh, it's called Sheep Among the Wolves, Volume 2. And... They're interviewing this, this female Christian in Iran and what her life is like there since she claimed the name of Christ. And this is what she says. The first thing is, in Iran, we know what country we are serving. We are serving the Islamic Republic of Iran. We know that if they get to us as women, the first thing they're going to do to us is rape us. And then they'll beat us and ultimately they will kill us. This is the decision, though, that we made, that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices because I had this thought when I wake up and that when I leave my door, I might not come back. I've talked to my husband and we've made an agreement that this is the decision of our lives so that if I leave the door and don't come back, we accept the consequences of what happens. Who can say that? I don't know that I can. I don't know that standing here in this moment, I can say that I'm prepared to make that statement. But she understands what it means for her home to be in Christ and be somewhere else. She understands what it means for her home not to be Iran. Iran. We are supposed to understand what it is for our home not to be here. We are Christians sanctified in the Spirit. And above everyone in this world, we should see that this place is not our home. I think everyone really understands that things aren't right. Who loves the way things are going on right now in your, in your government or around the world with wars? Like, we as Christians understand they're not right, but everybody does. Everybody understands that death is not supposed to be here, that sickness is not supposed to be here. The whole world is trying to alleviate those things, escape those things, and rightfully so. But it is the reality of our existence here. And we as Christians should understand that more than anyone. 
We should see that because we've seen Christ. We've seen something better. So we should understand just how depraved things are here. And then as people who are stuck here in an outpost, we operate from that mindset. We operate from that point of view. Our identity as exiles is how we spring out into action in the world. It's how we go on mission to Utah and Brazil and across town and to your neighbor's house. Because you know what? Your comfort isn't the most important thing. Making Christ known is. Um, but everything that's happening to us is so that we know this isn't our home. That our home is Christ. I think even our joy that we experience. What's the most joyful thing you can experience? I think for me right now in this moment of my life, it's, it's when I get to rock my daughter to sleep. And hold her and she snuggled up. That's, there's a lot of joy in that moment for me. But it never fails that in that moment as I'm rocking her to sleep, a melancholy hits me. And Ryan says I stay too sad all the time. But a melancholy hits me. And I'm like, this, this isn't going to last. This is brief. The, the most joyful thing I can experience in my life is fleeting quickly. And in that moment, I have to look to God and say, there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something lasting. And he says, there is. There is. Come to me. I have something that won't flee away from you. I have something that will, will last forever. This is not your home because even the joys you experience are fleeting. And if there is no home beyond this one, then it's all meaningless anyway. Those moments of joy are meaningless. Those moments of pain are meaningless. But it's not. It's all working something for you because there's somewhere else you're meant to be. And He is making you in His image so you can belong there. So we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit, but for a purpose. The purpose is in part our sanctification, but our sanctification through obedience to Jesus Christ. We're elect exiles for obedience to Christ and for washing with His blood. So we have a primary obedience to Christ. In John, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and He says, this is the will of God. What does he say? He says, the will of God is that you believe on the one he sent. That is your primary obedience. That is the primary will of God for your life. That you believe and you are washed with his blood. That you glorify him through claiming he is great and you are not. That's the primary obedience in the power of the Spirit according to the foreknowledge of God. But we have more purpose than that in following Christ. We like to have a purpose, right? It's hard to get out of bed in the morning when you don't have anything to do that day. Just kind of lay around. Purpose is what drives us to, to do things. So our purpose in obedience to Christ is what? We talk about it all the time. It's love God and love God in a way in which we love others and love others in a way which we're making disciples of all people and all tongues. That's the purpose we're still here for. If you're still here, sitting here this morning, and you are an elect exile, you're a Christ follower, then He has a purpose in your life for your sanctification, for His glory, for making His name known to the rest of the world, to your neighbor, to your dad, to your brother. 
You're here for a purpose. You know, when he's talking to, uh, when he, well, not when he's talking, I guess he's talking to God, but when he's praying the high priestly prayer, he says, I don't pray that you take my disciples out of the world, but that you keep them from the world. He says, I have a goal for them to be a light to this world. I have a goal for them in their existence here claiming my name as outpost Christians. They belong with me, but they need to be here for a while because I have things for them to do. I have things to do in them. He has things for you to do and things to do in you. So cool things happen when we obey Christ, right? Anybody ever seen cool things happen when you obey Christ? I was with Frankie and Pam, and it was just the three of us on this trip in January of 22, and, and uh, we're out evangelizing that afternoon, and I'm walking down the street on the left side of the road, and it's, it was a small town, so I'm coming to the end of the road. And there's a bar there, and there's a guy sitting at the bar at 2 in the afternoon. And he was drunk as he could be, like bad drunk. And I'm like, I'm going to pass this dude by because this conversation is not going to go very far. And I felt like God told me that moment. He's like, no, you're going to sit down and talk to him, and you're going to tell him specifically about the woman at the well. I was like, okay, he's drinking a well. I don't know. And so I sit down, and I'm trying to learn about him and talk to him, and it's, it's not very, very good. He's doing most of the talking, you know, something I can't understand. But what he does get out is, I've had three wives, and my fourth one just left me this morning. And I was like, oh, that's where the connection is to the woman at the well. So I spent like 30, 45 minutes with him and ended up leaving because I couldn't talk to him. And so I came back the next day, and he wasn't there, and I come down the other side of the street, and he's sitting there on the front porch of a friend's house, sober as he could be. And I sit down, and I talk to him, and we talk about what he was going through, and I'm able to share that story of the woman at the well with him. Now, I didn't see him convert to Christ, but what I did see is God using everything in his life up to that point to put him in a position to meet me and be told something from God's Word that was applicable to his situation that may make him see his need for God. And I have every confidence that if God was doing all of that, he was going to purpose it for this guy's salvation. And I got to plant a seed, and hopefully somebody else was able to bear the fruit of that. So when we obey Christ in the sanctification of the Spirit, according to the foreknowledge of God, everything in our life is structured for our good, for the good of those around us, for the glory of God. And we're going to fail. Over and over and over. We're going to fall. We're going to be reluctant. And I struggled with the end of verse 2 where it says, and for the washing with the blood. Because there's the initial washing, but the way Peter tags it on at the end, I was like, man, I don't know what he's doing with that. And the commentary was really thin on that particular topic. But I think what he's doing is saying, as you obey Christ in the power of the Spirit, let me say it a different way. If you walk outside this afternoon, you're going to know the sun's hot. If you were standing on Mercury, you're really going to know the sun's hot. As we obey Christ, as we push in further and further and further to who He is, we're going to become smaller and smaller and smaller. Our frailty, our inability, the desires of our flesh are going to become more and more evident to us. We see it when we first come to Him. But as we press into who He is, as we press into obedience, it becomes more and more evident and we cry out, Wash me with your blood. Christ, come back for me. I can't do this. I need your spirit in me doing this. As we realize our weakness as we press into him, 
we realize his strength. So we are elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge in the power of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. I don't know exactly where you're at this morning. I don't know if maybe you need to be resting in his sovereignty this morning. Maybe you've got things going on in your life that, that are hard and you're struggling with the purpose of them. You're struggling with why they're happening. They're happening because He has ordained them in your life to happen so you can seek out after Him. Maybe you need to reaffirm that Christ is your home and press into obedience. Maybe you've got things that, that are going on and you're like, I need to obey Christ in this, but I haven't been doing that. And you need to reaffirm that. You need to rest and reaffirm. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you're sitting here and you're like, well, am, am I elect? I don't know if I'm elect. You can know. It's simple. You believe. You believe that Christ was sent for your sins, that he was crucified for them, that he overcame them in his resurrection. You have your pastor here this morning. If you want to come down and talk to him, these steps are open. But know that your identity is not here. This is not your home. That's not your identity. Know your identity is as a chosen exile to this place. Know who you are and whose you are. Know that your home is not here. It's with Christ who will never fail you, never disappoint you, never abandon you, and is coming back for you. Let's pray.